Hello, welcome to Previously Unknown, a podcast produced by Independent New York that reframes and reevaluates what we think we know about contemporary art. I'm Elizabeth D., founder of Independent. Today, we welcome Matthew Higgs, founding curatorial advisor to Independent and today's moderator. Matthew will open the floor about the rising artists and disabilities movement in America, a timely topic given the recent news regarding SFMOMA's major acquisition of more than 150 works from Creative Growth Art Center. Matthew will speak with Tom DeMaria, Director Emeritus, on the history of the nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the practices of artists with disabilities and how this landmark museum support came to be. We'll also be joined by SFMOMA's director, Christopher Bedford, who could speak to how this move will enhance the permanent collection's significance and reach. Welcome to the program. Welcome. Uh, it's great to be joined today by uh, Tom DeMaria from Creative Growth in Oakland and by Christopher Bedford from San Francisco's Museum of Modern Art uh, to have a conversation uh, around uh, Creative Growth, Creative Growth's 50th anniversary, and a historic acquisition by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art of Works produced by artists affiliated with Creative Growth, Creativity Explored in San Francisco, and NIAD in Richmond, California. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, I would just ask Tom uh, and Christopher to introduce themselves and to sort of give some sense of the context for today's conversation. So perhaps, Tom, uh, you might introduce yourself, explain your current role, and your history with creative growth. Sure. Uh, thank you, Matthew. My name is Tom DiMaria. I'm the interim executive director of Creative Growth, and I was hired as the executive director of Creative Growth 24 years ago with a, a goal and a mission from the board to try to advance artists with disabilities into the contemporary arena. And I've been working on that for a couple of decades. And of course, there's a lot of history there to, and stories to tell as we. Uh, is this hour in vault, and I look forward to sharing those with you. And Christopher? Um, I'm Chris Bedford. I'm the still relatively newly minted uh, director of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Uh, I've been there for about a year and a half, and um, I will say I'm a, I'm a happy novice in the Bay Area, and uh, when I was contemplating the opportunity at the museum, uh, you know, I think part of that evaluation was searching for nodes of distinction, um, true nodes of distinction within the Bay Area. And uh, I think with Creative Growth, NIAD and Creativity Explored and the partnerships we've begun to develop with Tom and his crew, there's something extraordinarily exciting afoot. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk with two uh, relative experts and me, the novice, about what we can do to advance that cause. Tom, perhaps, uh, you know, for a uh, listener not familiar with what the Creative Growth Art Center is, which will celebrate its 50th anniversary uh, this year. So the organization was founded in 1974, initially in Berkeley and then in downtown Oakland. Uh, perhaps you could just give a quick sketch of Creative Growth's history and its, its sort of mission. Absolutely, I'd be happy to do that. I think if you look at 1974 in the San Francisco Bay Area, you have to be aware of the social and political climate of the time that allowed for the advancement in the creation of creative growth. So, you know, we're looking at a time of hippie culture, Berkeley free speech, Oakland Black Panthers, a really changing time in terms of how communities are coming together and what the hope for um, was for our collective societies. 
At the same time, then Governor Ronald Reagan, who was governor of California, uh, decided to close California state hospitals that had often essentially warehoused people with developmental disabilities. So there was this sort of epic shift between people with disabilities being moved into the community in a time of enormous social change. And those two things came together. And at the time, our founders, uh, Elias Katz and Florence Ludens Katz, um, were aware of these changes happening. Elias was a psychologist and Florence was an artist. And together, they were aware that um, folks with disabilities were going to be deinstitutionalized and wanted a path forward for them. Mm -hmm. uh, Florence, being an artist, helped inform the conversation that creativity would be a path forward and that people with disabilities would find um, opportunity, professional growth, creative growth. That's where our name comes from. It's a path to creative growth. And that people with disabilities would also integrate into society through a specific program of studio art making in a gallery program that would serve as a portal to the public. So we have to remember that this seems like maybe a common activity now or something we might be familiar with. At the time, it was an extremely radical act. It was a time when people with disabilities were hidden away, were institutionalized, were not supposed to be part of society. So their vision was really um, one that's carried us forward for 50 years as the organization has grown and served as a model for other organizations. Uh, thanks, Tom. And I think it's important to perhaps underscore just how radical the Katz's ideas were because this wasn't a form of art therapy. Uh, their approach to the art studio and art making and an individual's creative development uh, was largely unprecedented in terms of how they actually organized creative growth and how they helped and worked with and alongside artists with disabilities. Absolutely. What's very unique about creative growth at the time and remains so in relationship to other uh, similar organizations um, for the most part, is that creative growth is run by artists. We're artist-led, and the Katzes had a model that artists would create the path forward, that there's something about artists supporting artists that would lead to the realization of creative growth. You know, I have an MFA. I have no training in disability studies or other kinds of um, act, you know, background that people ask me about all the time, and nor do most of the people that work at creative growth. So there's something intrinsic about the understanding of aesthetics, understanding being an artist, what the process of creativity is like. And our enormously talented staff of artists support the creative growth artists in ways that artists support each other when they're in art school or when they're talking about their own work, understanding that timelines are not often relevant to the outside world that creativity takes time, that it's a personal vision, that support is the best way forward, that right and wrong is not something that's helpful. Um, so we've evolved that way. And in terms of radical vision, you know, I refer to a book that was here in the office that um, belonged to Elias Katz mm -hmm. from the 70s about raising a child with disabilities in society. And in this book, it talks about could a family with a child with Down syndrome take their child out 
to dinner or where they always have to eat dinner at home for the rest of their lives. So this is the context in which the Katzes said, this will be a cultural revolution and advancement for people with disabilities. I think another important aspect of you know the Katz's vision, and I think vision's the right word because it was really a visionary approach to thinking about art, art making, who makes art, how art gets made, where art gets made, and I guess perhaps most importantly, why art gets made. But from the very beginning, from the outset of creative growth in the mid-1970s, the Katzes were very interested in making sure that the work produced by artistic creative growth wasn't kind of ghettoized. They were very keen for this work to circulate within the larger world of contemporary art, and they wanted to create a gallery, which you described as a portal, which would show not only the work produced at creative growth, but also the work of artists from outside of creative growth, more conventionally trained artists. So from the beginning, they always wanted this to be in a conversation with other forms of contemporary art. Yes, and I think, you know, working with Elias, and, you know, Elias died, I think, probably about 10 years ago, and I think him coming back to creative growth at the last years of his life, in some ways, creative growth had advanced, I think, beyond what his hopes were. Not that he was in any way, he was elated, um, and, but I think the expectations for 1974 and the realization of 2024 and what we're doing now with um, your work, Matthew, and with your work, Christopher, to advance our artists is, um, you know, a dream for him in terms of what it meant. But the participation and the collegial attitude of creative growth artists working with academically trained artists or artists on staff was always part of it. He looked at the gallery as being a portal between the public and the creative growth artists, both in terms of how, you know, still to this day, how many people with disabilities are an intimate part of your life? Probably very few. How many do you know? Probably more than what people knew in 1974. So this is still part of our mission to have this kind of advancement, this blending, this recognition, this understanding of the cultural contributions that the creative growth artists make. And perhaps, Christopher, I can bring you and San Francisco Museum of Modern Art into the conversation now because um, my first encounter <coughs> with creative growth was around 2002. Uh, I'd recently moved to the Bay Area, like yourself uh, uh, now, and I came across creative growth almost by accident, but not quite. But it struck me immediately, uh, not knowing anything about its history, but when I first encountered the organization and its artists and its staff, uh, it struck me as an incredibly important cultural narrative that for the most part, and I, you know, I'm generalizing now, for the most part wasn't that well known outside of the Bay Area itself or outside of the arts and disabilities community. And it seemed to me as a curator then working in the Bay Area and then subsequently in New York uh, that there was a lot to be learned from the creative growth model uh, from the experience of uh, how the Katzes approached the ideas of art making that seemed to, to me to just gently disrupt uh, or radically disrupt a lot of the kind of conventional ideas we might have about art and art making. So on the occasion of um, Creative Growth's 50th anniversary, it was announced last year uh, a historic 
acquisition by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art of, I believe, more than 150 works produced at Creative Growth, Creativity Explored, and NIAD, and that this spring, uh, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art will open a dedicated exhibition celebrating 50 years of art and life at Creative Growth, and that will be followed this fall by a gala uh, to celebrate Creative Growth's anniversary. Um, perhaps you would just like to talk about how you see San Francisco Museum of Modern Art's role within these conversations and how the acquisition and subsequent support of organizations like Creative Growth uh, can help transform or have a transformative impact on the museum itself. I mean, thank you for the question. I'm going to try and resist the impulse to um, respond with a you know effusive one-hour monologue about this um, partnership. But I will say, just at the outset, um, and Matthew, I think it's important that it's publicly acknowledged that the reason um, this partnership began, has grown, and will grow further was an initial conversation that my colleague Casey Siegel and I had with you in New York following a publicly posted letter um, addressed to me on Instagram, um, which I'm not on, but um, but Casey brought to, to my attention. And um, I think your point was essentially, if you do anything in the Bay Area, do this. And um, given your work, um, my admiration for it, and your time in the Bay Area, I've um, fortunately was sensible enough to to pay attention and probably a little bit like um, the cats themselves what's come of it is it wildly outstripped my expectations I think that probably all three of us on this call share something of an appetite for disruption and maybe a, a desire to change the center and um, I think part of that impulse is frankly and you know unapologetically a little bit selfish I'm always looking for those moments, those artists, those movements, those projects that sort of set my head on fire and um, that I think will change the very core of what institutions can mean and do for their publics. And I had a sense that maybe Creative Growth and I had Creativity Explored would be that spark. Um, and that's proved to absolutely be the case. I think I was drawn to SFMOMA because it's, you know, the big table of modernism. It's um, along with our sister institution in New York, is where the big story is told. And um, while I have been in context throughout the course of my career where I've been sort of lobbing bombs at the center from a marginal position, this is a really different, different proposition where you're at the very center already and you have the power to change the way it's constituted. And um, I'm a big believer in site specificity, big believer in distinction. And um, it became quickly apparent to me in conversations with Tom in particular, who is an inspiring and generous collaborator, that it wasn't to overstate the case um, in saying that the Bay Area is the home of artists working with disabilities and institutions advocating for their interest. So I thought, you know, um, creative growth has been around for 50 years. SFMO has been around for a lot longer. That collision should have occurred um, you know, probably 50 years ago, but didn't. And um, if not now, then then when? So we sort of de we deployed our our curators and my colleague Katie Siegel as well, leading the charge to begin um, exploring what a productive partnership might look like. And um, you know, while some of those things we're going to do initially, 
the historic acquisition, the presentation of the exhibition, conferences, symposia, um, etc. at the museum will be laser focused and with the intent of drawing specific attention to creativity explored and, and um, creative growth. The idea actually is to, in the spirit of the Katzes, integrate that work into a, a new post-war canon and to say these artists deserve their place at the table on merit alone, just like everyone else, to conclude that thought that this isn't working with these organizations isn't a platitude or a stunt. What it is, is a very strong feeling that there is work being done in those spaces um, consistently at a level that I personally don't experience on a day-to-day basis. So I think probably all three of us walk up and down the streets of Chelsea in New York between what, 11th and 10th Avenue, um, 18th Street to 26th Street, in a desperate bid to find something interesting. And, um, you know, often that doesn't happen. I mean, very often that doesn't happen. If you walk through creativity, explored Nyad creative growth, that hit rate is much, much, much higher. And I d- can't explain that at all. And, my, and the fact that I can't explain it and the fact that I'm so interested every time, um, I think is what keeps me coming back. and deepens the conviction that this really will positively and fundamentally change SFMOMA and engage our audience in the way that they they perhaps haven't imagined to this point. So um, I'm very grateful for all of it. Well, I think also, I mean, it's, you, you know, your more recent experience and introduction to these organizations and the, you know, the daily ebb and flow at these spaces, uh, you know, really mirrors my experience 20 odd years ago because uh, what I found extraordinary and continue to find extraordinary is that um, what the Katzes saw, you know, what, what they saw but had yet to build was this sort of universal, the universal nature of what unfolds on a daily basis at these three organizations. And it's that individuals with disabilities, if they're provided with an environment and support to allow their creative development to unfold, it will happen. And they sort of knew this before they actually had any proof that it was true. And I think one of the really remarkable things for me about these organizations is that all of the artists who are currently part of these programs are local artists. So they're not coming from elsewhere. These are local artists. So what the Cats has really understood, and I think it's it's the great potential, not just of these organizations, but of your collaboration, is that in every community, in every city, in every town, there's an equal number of truly extraordinarily talented artists with disabilities who we're just not yet familiar with because they haven't had the opportunity to allow that creative development to grow. Um, Tom, from your perspective on creative growth, maybe you can just sort of explain your relationship with the museum, something to the extent that you can say about how this conversation unfolded and continues to unfold and what it means, not just for creative growth and the organizations in the Bay Area, but for the field more generally. Sure, I'm happy to, because it's a, it's a great historic story. It's going to become a historic story in terms of um, you know, creative growth trajectory. Um, after the introduction, as Christopher described, we got, were put in touch. I don't remember exactly how. And Chris said he wanted to come over with the team and uh, have a tour. So they came to creative growth. 
and uh, we gave them a tour of the studio. If you haven't been to Creative Growth, we own a big industrial building, 12,000 square feet, where all the artists work in a massive room, usually 100 at a time, doing what they do. It's often quiet. And uh, on the day that Chris and his team was there, if I remember correctly, it was everything was going on. There was all kinds of art being made. There were, you know, we had a medical emergency. We were calling 911. It was just a regular day in the studio. And I remember Chris saying to me, it's like, oh, you seem to have a lot on your plate. And uh, so, you know, I was um, impressed by that. So then we went to sit in the gallery, Chris and his team and me. And, you know, in many ways, people come to Creative Growth to tick a box that they have visited. And that was their DEI work around disability. And instead, Chris said to me, if we were going to do a partnership, what would that look like? What would you want? And I said, well, I know what I want. He was hopefully not surprised by my answer because I had a list ready in my head, even though I was caught off guard by the question because it's typically not asked. And I said, this would take the form of a major acquisition, an exhibition, a partnership in the gallery around the annual Art and Disability Symposium that Creative Growth hosts, a celebration of our 50th anniversary. And one more thing I still ask for that I haven't gotten yet, an exhibition of a contemporary working artist such as Dan Miller or William Scott to have a retrospective in a contemporary art museum. And Christopher essentially said, fine. And since then, it's been just amazing in terms of his team, the curatorial visits that have taken place, six or seven with three or four curators, to come here to look thoughtfully at our archives, at the work by the contemporary artists, um, and to really develop an acquisition policy and procedure that really represented each of the artists that are going to be represented in the collection as meaningful contemporary artists with individual practices, but also recognizing the totality of creative growth as an institution and as an organization historically. And as we now start to look at the next wave of the work going into the museum and events in visitorship and discussions, it is, I hope, a um, call to other institutions around the world to look to the communities, to look to people with disabilities as being vital participants, partners um, for their institutions. And if those walls start to crumble, then this um, this partnership will have, you know, radical influence on contemporary culture around the world, just as the creation of creative growth had that kind of influence on the capacity and ability for people with disabilities to become cultural participants in our in our time in this era. Um, and Christopher, from the museum's perspective, and I think maybe it'd be interesting to um, talk to our listeners a little bit about your experience at the Baltimore Museum of Art, where you and your partner, colleague Katie Siegel, made really significant inroads in trying to sort of expand uh, the collection at the Baltimore Museum. How might this partnership with uh, the Bay Area organizations function within a kind of institutional narrative uh, within the curating, conservation, presentation, and so on in terms of exhibition making. But also I think 
perhaps most importantly in terms of art history making? I love the provocation um, and I love the phrasing art history making. It's a, a you know very good one. I may steal it for a public program, um, but, I, but I but I do think that that is that is fundamentally what we're after. And I think just to sort of contrast um, some of the work that Casey and I did in Baltimore, um, you know that's that's a it's a big collecting institution, not as big as SF MoMA, but a big collecting institution that has a long history um, and an incredibly distorted, um, highly biased track record of amassing histories spanning time that is isn't exceptional in the scheme of museums um it's exactly symmetrical with those collecting patterns of places like the met um and i think made the point to me that museums aren't exceptional in any way with we're, we're merely symptomatic so if um culture has biases and blind spots traditional i mean obviously sort of inevitably institutions are going to reflect those so the glaring one um, in Baltimore was the fact that we were seated as a museum within the black majority city and had radically underrepresented the contributions of black American artists to the history of art. Um, Katie and I brought that conviction and also background knowledge expertise to to the museum. And so there was, there was it, in the retelling, it sounds very simple, but we simply decided sort of ruthlessly and with every decision to um, advance the ideas, creativity, um, projects of um, black American artists working in the post-war era, make those artists, their ideas and their art, the leading edge of an institution in the public setting and tr attempt to transform the relationship between the museum um, and a largely neglected public. And, you know, with repeated action and with, um, and as trust grew over time, the museum completely changed. So that demonstrated to me that it's extremely possible. Um, I think that the the challenge and the opportunity in San Francisco and working with artists with disabilities is, is to some extent the same thing um, and also maybe something a little bit bigger, um, which is to say, I'm, I think museums, this is sort of a, I guess, a big-ish thought in gestation, ha had been in a very long period of what you could call thesis, wherein the same things were being done over and over and over again. And I think in around 2020, earlier, for a lot of museums that had had um, a sort of more autonomous awakening, but for many institutions in around 2020 um, and in the grip of the pandemic, um, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, there was a different level of accountability to the public that took root. And um, museums began something like a sprint, period of sprint reparation or sprint um, antithesis, so thesis antithesis, naturally leading you to synthesis. And I think that the big opportunity in a place like San Francisco, at SFMOMA, with the scale of the collection, the scale of the building, the resources of the board, um, and the riches of the artistic community is to dig into the very core of the modernist project and turn it on its head. So it, in lots of ways, not to just expand the canon, as it's called, not just expand through addition, but change its orientation completely. Um, and I think one thing we're interested in is not stylistic histories, but social histories. So when Tom talks about 
the beginnings of creative growth, I find that riveting. He's not talking about the development of style. He's not talking about, um, you know, uh, artists working in sort of casual conversation with each other. He's talking about the a moment of great cultural ferment of which artists with disabilities were a part. That kind of storytelling, I think, is really riveting and will engage publics in a totally different way. So, yeah, remaking art history, making art history differently. However you phrased it, Matthew, it was better. <laughs> um, Tom, I think a lot of the things that Christopher's touched on have sort of, you know, we're, we're talking now in 2024, it's 50 years since the founding of Creative Growth, and then the subsequently its sister organizations. And in some respects, it's taken quite a long time to get to this point, to get to a point where a, a major institution like SFMOMA is interacting seriously, not just with uh, creative growth, but with the field and what the field actually represents. And one of the things, you know, I think that's interesting for me, Tom, is how the work produced by artists with disabilities creates all kinds of issues uh, in terms of how it's categorized, how it's defined, how it's understood. And I think for a long time, uh, the work was sort of understood within this sort of larger rubric of outsider art, uh, which is a term that came into use after Creative Growth's founding, or within the more broad uh, idea of self-taught art. And I've always found that none of these are particularly satisfactory, and none of them really describe uh, the context in which art is made at Creative Growth. So perhaps, Tom, you might just say something about the sort of shifting uh, categorization of work produced in organizations like Creative Growth. And I think also that we find ourselves in a much more interesting, uh, much more forward thinking, and much more ambitious place today. Happy to discuss that because this is one of the most exciting things about our partnership with SFMOMA, is bringing the work into a contemporary museum context. We actually don't know how to contextualize it. It exists on its own history, and that history hasn't been told. And if we look at the history of disability art in the world, we see it coming from mental institutions in Switzerland and Germany, being categorized as art by the insane, starting to be seen as outsider or art brute work that was coming from self-taught artists. But none of those really describe the cultural phenomenon of disability and its relationship to art. I think of creative growth as being um, a social change organization as part of, you know, as a subset of its being an art center. And I look at having done other activist work in the queer community and the AIDS community, how do you advance ideas that are antithetical to what a lot of people in society want to embrace? Well, what you do is, is you sort of look for the qualities of what you're doing and you try to advance them. And sometimes you have to make some assimilationist um, steps to have the work be come forward and have it be seen. And then we're at this really important turning point, and I can't sort of over overstate how important I think it is. My thinking about where we are right now is you do all this work for 50 years. The tipping point seems like it happened yesterday. It's been happening slowly every day for 50 years. You go to a point where a radical change is going to happen. And, you know, I use the term from the margins to the mainstream in, re in regarding um, some of the advancement of the creative growth artists. 
we now have our seat at the table in some ways. The dinner party is starting. You've done all that work to get invited and you're sitting down and now you say, excuse me, I have to interrupt the dinner and because I have something to say. And I think that conversation about what artists with disabilities will bring into the contemporary world has not been um, realized yet. And their contributions as people with disabilities is very rich. The culture of disability is very rich. We've led the advancement of the creative growth artist's work by saying these are artists in a contemporary setting and their work should be seen as contemporary. And now that we've sort of reached that first hurdle, we need to say this is work by artists with disabilities and it's richly and deeply informed by their lived experiences as people with disabilities and what is the culture of disability? Why do we see work like this similarly made from other centers around the world, yet the voice is specific to the maker? And uh, that's an exciting topic. And I'm sure you both have ideas. I'm sure viewers will have ideas. We see it and hear about it all the time at art fairs and other places where people are trying to understand, like, why am I staring at this work? What does it mean to me? Why is your booth more interesting to me than the other booths I've seen in this fair? What is happening in terms of why am I connected with this work and I don't even like go to museums? You know, we don't know what those connections are, but they're powerful and they're rich. And I think that's, we're at the point of, na of, of new discovery with this exhibition and this partnership with us at MoMA. And, you know, I think to speak to, you know, perhaps my personal experience in terms of working with creative growth and its artists and artists from centers like Creative Growth, both nationally and internationally, is uh, for me at least at White Columns, the, the space in New York that I'm the director of, I think we've organized more than 30 solo exhibitions now by artists with disabilities, whose work we present alongside the work of more conventionally trained artists or artists with unconventional histories. And for us at least, the idea was just to put this work into the public's domain and to see what happened. Um, I think one of the things that immediately happened for White Columns is that it made White Columns a more interesting organization. But I think also the when uh, you're working curatorially uh, with the work of artists who are affiliated with places like Creative Growth, um, a lot of the kind of sort of received language that we perhaps apply to contemporary art doesn't exactly work in the ways that it uh, my otherwise. So I think one of, you know, one of the things that the art world is really about is the creation of consensus. And it seems to me that consensus doesn't yet exist and perhaps might never really exist in the way that we understand it around the work produced at centers like Creative Growth because I think in many respects it actively resists that process of consensus making which we're very familiar with in the contemporary art world. Um, Christopher, from, from a, the museum's perspective, um, your relationship perhaps with more conventionally trained artists, contemporary living artists, uh, is, does the museum need to recalibrate how it thinks about how it works with artists going forward, not just with this collaboration with the Bay Area organizations, but to speak to what you said more uh, at the beginning more broadly about, you know, really about it being a game-changing, field-changing, artistry-changing endeavor? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's fascinating, uh, the point you make, Matthew, that creative growth artists, um, and we'll just use that as shorthand, um, 
in their very existence constitution processes project resist the ideas that structure art history and I think that's absolutely true so you know when when I speak with the board or curators about the kinds of acquisitions we'll make from galleries representing more conventionally oriented artists the idea is you know art history as we've as it's been written is a sequence of doors opening and doors closing um, and in order for you to take your place at the table, you as an artist need to acknowledge every door that's been opened historically and open your own in, in recognition of those other doors that are now closed to you. So it's a sort of a recognition and rupture, recognition, rupture. And um, I think we've abided by that without putting too much pressure on it for many, many, many years. I think it's led to a habit of understanding history, art history, as a history of style. So um, if you sort of discard those precepts completely, which the creative growth artists do just naturally, it lands you in a completely different place. So um, to talk about Dan Miller, for instance, I mean, he makes the typewriter works he makes. They look like works of conceptual art, right? That's what they look like. So you can, um, so then you look at the history of conceptualism and you sort of try to understand, is he making a step stylistically? Yes. Is he aware of any of those steps in the history of conceptualism? Probably not. Um, is it conceptual art? Definitely not. I find conceptual art deeply boring. Um, I always have. Um, I, I, I mean, I think the, the, the issue being that the ideas pre-exist the acts, so why even make, why, why even do it? Um, from, from my perspective, obviously highly biased. I'm sure we've lost half the people listening to this podcast as a consequence of that. But that's not that's not why Dan Miller is doing it at all. And um, it's they're enchanting to look at. They're bewildering, um, just as as the rest of his of his art is. So I um, I think it does force us to think differently about the way that we organize history. And to then pivot back to that earlier point, I think it forces us to reckon with the idea of art history as social history and um, and not and not a history of style if we want to authentically include um, artists with disabilities and others. Can I make one additional comment to that? Um, I'm not an art historian or an academic, but you know I know enough to think that the art that's defined specific e eras of time, was not embraced at the time and art history is written often by historians looking back at a time and I think that what's happening now we won't fully understand for a while and I think inviting people to become a part of an art historic moment is really exciting because um, the future isn't described in terms of what this partnership will mean and what the culture of disability how it will unfold in the art world. And for me, that's the most exciting thing. And perhaps for our listeners, Tom and Christopher, maybe you can just outline before we wrap this conversation up, perhaps you can just outline some of the things uh, that they can look forward to during this you know, momentous year of Creative Growth's 50th anniversary and you know, this extraordinary celebration of the cats' ideas. And also how those ideas were fermented, like you said, Tom, at the beginning within the Bay Area itself. So maybe you can just give us an idea of what, what's coming up. Sure, I can, I'll take the lead on that, Chris. You can fill in. Yep. Um, as right. we, we're in the final steps of preparing for the exhibition that will open in, on April 4th at SF MoMA. 
and that will run through October of 2024. So first of all, we invite people to come and see that. We're making plans now about opening and other sorts of events, but we're still crafting the exhibition. So the work has been acquired and the work is being prepped for the walls, but still teams of Mass of MoMA are coming to look at historical materials, ephemera, data, old posters that really tell a story about the history of the time in which it was made, about how the, the language has changed, how the terminology has changed, how the artist's vision has always been clear, but the organizational structures and the culture that supports and understands the work have, have swirled around them. And I think having that historical um, context for the work will help people understand it and also understand the trajectory of people's lives with disabilities in the last 50 years, how they've changed. I think of an artist like Judith Scott, who was born institutionalized essentially and died as a contemporary artist, how her life is parallel to the shifts that we've seen in the field. And that's exciting and people will be able to experience that, I hope, at the, um, at the museum, at the institution. In May, late May, we do an annual, fifth annual convening of art and disability practitioners and followers. Very much a hands-on kind of experience also with externally facing lectures to be announced at SFMOMA so the broader community can come and understand hopefully how we're trying to challenge and dismantle institutional structures at the museum to reimagine what can be on the walls and have those discussions. And then on September 25th will be a 50th anniversary celebration, dinner, performative event in the atrium and Schwab Hall at SFMOMA that will really bring our communities together in celebration of the exhibition, primarily of the nine living artists whose work will be on the walls at the institution to really have them shine and be recognized for the decades they've worked without recognition and to have the community celebrate that. And Christopher? Um, I mean, I think, I mean, Tom, Tom gave the, a very fulsome, detailed narration of the, the initial stage of this partnership. And I did want to emphasize that term initial. I don't view this as a project with an end. Um, I think our conviction remains deep. Um, this is, I think we have a mutual agreement that this is just phase one. I'm very much looking forward to writing phase two, phase three, phase four um, in concert with Tom to advance the cause. But also, I think, to present SFMOMA and Creative Growth's collaboration as a replicable model um, for other institutions around the country. And you, Matthew, made the good point that the maybe one of the only reasons that other museums in the US and elsewhere have not centered the work of artists with disabilities, one, it's will, um, two, it's resources, three, it's awareness. But it's also that probably those structures that have advocated for artists with disabilities like creative growth maybe don't exist um, in those cities or, or they do and there isn't collective awareness um, of the work that they do. So uh, there, there are some that that idea of replication, I think, is incredibly important. So we'll keep innovating and then we'll keep telegraphing those innovations such that other people pay attention and maybe begin to dig into those local artists um, working in their backyard that are doing things that aren't at all hanging on the walls of those museums. I find that just extraordinarily exciting. And then I think we want to continue asking questions. I mean, I have questions as an art historian about 
the quality of the work being made at Creative Growth and why? And I know, Matthew, you and I share that question, so the, the why, and I have the beginning, I think I have the beginnings of an answer, and some of it is is purely, it's structural methodological. I think that Katz has figured out early on that if you put artists in a space all together every day, making art, that process of creative ferment never ends. Um, and I think back on my own, say, undergraduate and postgraduate training, and that was a moment of great intellectual growth. But then at a certain point, unless you consciously keep going, you sort of stagnate and you work with, you know, you work with the knowledge that you accrued during that period where your brain and, and your experience was, were expanding. And I have this feeling that the way that the CATS has organized creative growth was intended to forestall that completely, that those artists working together every day never stop growing. And um, I think there's something really extraordinary to be learned from that, that might have a broader application to art and art history. So um, we'll keep, as I said, we'll keep innovating and growing and deepening the partnership. But I think we'll try to keep asking those questions in public and answering them in public. Um, and I think that will be, it will be a rewarding journey. Thank you very much, Christopher. That's a really perfect place to leave the beginning of this conversation. Uh, I'd like to thank Tom DeMaria and Christopher Bedford uh, for spending time with us. Uh, if you are interested, go to Creative Growth's website, to Creativity Explores website, to go to NIAD's website. If you're in the Bay Area, make sure you stop by and visit. Uh, I'm a longstanding advocate for these organizations, and I truly believe that Creative Growth is the most important cultural organization in the United States. And I'm excited to experience everything that's coming up this year at San Francisco's Museum of Modern Art. So thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you for listening to Previously Unknown, a podcast produced by Independent New York. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to support the show, you can visit our website, independenthq.com, or find us on Instagram at independenthq. 